All right. We're going to read verses 11 through 14. All right. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. Like the cold of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So when looking at verse 11 here, where we see it says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. There are two main things to consider here. The weight of the word spoken and the timing of its being given. So when we think about the weight of it being spoken, one of the main things that I like to really uh, point out and kind of harp on is, is you know, the idea that uh, brevity is the, is the, a sign of wit, right? Or is, you know, like the, the idea that uh, men who are short of words and are able to convey great wisdom in short amount of words, it's, it shows their, how much more wisdom they actually have, really, right? Um, so, like, think of the idea of, say, like a glass of water, right? And how you fill that glass up with water and how it holds more volume because it's in a confined space, right? But then you take that same glass of water and you pour it out on the ground and it just splatters and, and goes everywhere, right it's kind of like that where the uh, the the more confined the area the more volume it holds right so the the less words that a man has to be able to use in order to convey an idea in order to actually um, get his point across it really shows how greater how much greater wisdom he actually has right uh, and and um you know this So, like, you think that the, there's oftentimes those men that you have around you or the, person, the people that you have in your life that they don't really speak very much. But whenever they do speak, they command the attention of the room, right? Like, they, we, everybody knows what type of person we're talking about, right? Like, those are the types of people that have that gravity, that gravitas, the weight of what they're saying, right? And like I said, they command the attention of the room. And so and everybody listens because they know that even though they don't speak very much, what they do say is going to be something that's going to actually provide great wisdom to the matter of what you're speaking. Right. And it, not only that, but also oftentimes uh, these people also have a very beautiful way of saying it. Right. It have a very great way of getting conveying their idea across to you, a very poetic almost. Right. Um, so it's, it's the volume also, but then it also speaks about how, like, it's the sweetness of the word itself, right, that they're providing for you. Um, how much easier it is to consume and digest medicine that is both palatable and good for you. It's the job of, uh, of teachers, but especially preachers, to impart wisdom upon those in their care with acceptable words. Words that are fit to the occasion and directed toward the specific context in which they are speaking. The Puritan, uh, Edward Lee, a contemporary of the Westminster Divine, states that there are five main ingredients for proper preaching. Right understanding, true dividing, faithful interpreting, zealous uttering, and powerful applying. So those first three there are more so associated with how you're reading the word itself. 
right? How you're actually interpreting and understanding what the, the idea that it's trying to get across to you and things like that. But then the last two, the zealous uttering is how he is able to relate to the congregation, right? And then there's also the powerful applying. So take this, which I am imparting to you, and this is how you can now apply it to your life, how it applies to your particular context as an individual in this congregation, right? So it's uh, so often we see men in, in the pulpits, even in our current climate, that seem to be tone deaf. They don't acknowledge the foolishness of the world that is being thrown around them. And rather than speaking against it, they are themselves pushing it as well. And rather than giving these golden apples to their congregation, they offer the rancid fruit of the world to their congregations. We also see that there are men that have the good wisdom in our pulpits, but they don't have the words or boldness to fitly speak them. Yet, when we look at the biblical witness, we see that neither uh, of these are the case. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 50, verse 4, says that the Lord has given him a tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. And we can correctly apply these words to the Lord Christ and his apostles, right? So, uh, think of it like, you know, Trent and I talk about football all the time, right? So, um, you know, there's, there's this one drill that we used to run when I, was, when I played football all the time, where there's like a sled, right? And they would put weight on this sled that's, say, like 100 pounds. And then they would put a harness around you that you strap around your chest, and then you'd attach that harness uh, strap to the sled, and you go run 50, 100-yard sprints or whatever, right? And it's tough work. You're having to do these constant drills that are ex extremely exhausting. Now, imagine if we took that sled and we put wheels on the bottom of it instead. Right. Uh, you know how much easier it would be to do that drill? It lightens the load. The words of Christ are like the wheels on the bottom of the sled that helped glide the weight of what he was trying to convey to the people. Like the woman at the well, for instance, right? This woman who he had, uh, who he had just asked to give him water, right? He now is applying, he's looking at the current uh, context where the both of them are speaking to one another at. He asks her for water, and then he says, I have living water. Come to me, and I can give you this water that, will, uh, that you will never thirst anymore, right? So there's, he's, he's taking the, the proper context of where he's at, and he's applying uh, with, with words of wisdom to this person. He know, and he reveals that he knows everything about this woman, right? You know, you've had five husbands, right? You, the man who you are living with is not actually your husband, Right? And she goes to the people and ultimately tells them, this man, uh, come and see this man who has told me everything I've ever done, right? Again, he's speaking to the woman in her proper context. But then you also even see uh, the instance of, say, when Christ feeds the 5,000, right? And then he tells them where they can find the true manna from heaven immediately after, right? He feeds the 5,000 with the fish, with the five loaves and the two fish, and, and uh, following him to understand where the true bread from heaven was, that, was uh, that they could feast upon and live forevermore. Speaking of things with eternal significance within the particular context of which they found themselves. And notice how these golden apples that extend forth from the lips of Christ counteract the effects of the fruit that our first fathers ate. By one man taking the fruit into his own mouth, he sent the world into chaos and death. Yet by the fruit that comes forth from the mouth of the Son of Man, man shall live again and be restored to his properly created order. 
We see even in the passage of the fall where Eve looked upon the fruit that was there, and it just, it's described for us, it was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desire, uh, to be desired to make one wise. Verse 11 of our passage follows a similar structure for us. Apples are a delight to the stomach, but these aren't just apples. They are apples of gold, and gold is a delight to the eyes. And even so are the wise words spoken in their proper uh, circumstances, a delight to the ear and the soul. The problem here is the context. Adam and Eve took the fruit which was not fitting for its proper context. Examples of uh, golden apples in other literature as well kind of convey a similar idea. Um, like we, we see uh, there's an Irish uh, druidical lore seen as an in, uh, they're seen as an entrance into the other world across the Western Sea. There's a poem called The Voyage of Bran where a king named Bran, son, uh, son of fable, went on a trip to a timeless place called Emain. One night where Bran, hap, uh, Bran happened uh, upon a silver branch with white blossoms and golden apples, and when he entered into his home with his men, there appeared a woman who revealed that the branch belonged to her and that she brought it from a far-off land where unknown is willing or treachery in the familiar cultivated land. There's nothing rough or harsh but sweet music striking on the ear without grief, without sorrow, without death, without any sickness, without debility, that is the sign of a man. Uncommon is an equal marvel, a beauty of a wondrous land whose aspects are lovely, whose view is a fair country, incomparable is its haze. It is there that they will find the creator of the heavens and the earth, one whom it says is the son of a woman whose mate will not be known. In other words, he's the son of a virgin. And it is he whose rule is without beginning excuse me, and end and will purify his, uh, his hoses under pure water and heal your sicknesses. It says, this branch is used as a passport of sorts for Bran and his men to gain entry into this land. Now, there's also a famous composer named Wagner um, who, you know, he, he has, uh, you know, he was very influential over the last century, especially. Um, but he has this one play that really takes place in a lot of Norse, uh, with a lot of Norse elements. Um, and it's this one play that he wrote called The Ring of Nebulon, where there are basically are these golden apples, which there's a, they, they are acting as a symbol of immortality um, and eternal youth within the play. And they're given their own leitmotif, which, you know, if anybody who has any idea of music, musical theory, what a leitmotif is kind of like, you know, whenever you uh, are watching Star Wars and, like, you know, Darth Vader comes into the scene, you hear that, dun, 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 right? So it's this kind of, like, this, this uh, short little musical motif that plays kind of conveying that this character or this element is being brought into the, the scene, basically, into the play. And the, the apples themselves are actually given their own, and it shows, like, how influential and how important they are to the center of the story. Um... Are there any thoughts so far on verse 11 so far? No? All right. Sweet. All right. Now on to verse 12. It says, Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. 
So with verse 12, we see that there is now commerce between two individuals. It's no longer just the timely words of one, but there is a particular setting wherein these commands are made, a time for rebuke and a time for reproof. But we see here that in the, uh, in the perfect setting, both parties are to be praised, both the rebuker and the rebuked. The rebuker because he stood in boldness and wisely called out sin where it lay. When we see that the rebuked here are also to be praised because they are, uh, then we see that the rebuked here are also to be praised because they are an obedient ear. There are many examples of this in the biblical witness, Nathan to David, to probably the most famous one that we see. There's Isaiah to Hezekiah, and then there's also, I mean, Paul to Peter in Galatians 3, right, where he says that Peter stood condemned, so he, he opposed him to his face, right? And often it is a breath of fresh air when it even happens in our lives when godly rebuke is met with obedience and repentance. However, let me ask you this. Is it actually generally the case that this is what happens? where godly rebuke is met with godly repentance. Is that generally what actually happens? Yeah, 100%. We oftentimes want to hold on and try to save ourselves from any sting that comes from rebuke and trying to push off blame away from ourselves rather than holding ourselves accountable. What about when you are the one rebuked? Sure. There are many moments in our current context where we receive unwarranted and unjust rebuke, even from other Christians. But I'm talking about when a righteous brother comes to you with a good and righteous concern for your soul. How do you respond? Do you get defensive? Let me just say this. Sin does not gain a full grasp upon your heart when you fall in. Uh, does, does not so much gain a hold upon your heart when you fall into your temptations as much as it does when you defend it. When you start trying to rationalize and provide an argument in favor of why you commit the sin itself, then you are starting to swim into dangerous waters. You're behaving like David, sending Uriah out to the front lines of battle in order to run from the consequences of your sins. Did you have... Oh, sorry, I thought you were kind of like... No, I'm, I'm tracking. You're good. It's like, it seemed like you were... Yep, we're about to hit the, have Bible study in the dark, huh? <laughs> but this is why later in his state of repentance of his grave sin, David says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. Because repentance requires that you take your hand away and loosen your grip so that the Lord may cover your sins on your behalf. Like what Pastor Benny Castle mentioned in his sermon this last Sunday, strip yourselves of your fig leaves, and that the Lord may cover you in the coat of, an, of animal skins. Now, this is not to say that repentance is easy, obviously. It's not without its sting, just as the ladies that are present here can attest. A piercing is not easy either, right? Like what our passage compares it to. However, that sting is not without a purpose. The sting of godly rebuke is to restore you to proper order and beauty, just as a gold earring set within the pierced ear adorns and accentuates the beauty of its bearer. Godly rebuke is not at the expense of its target, but rather it is the proper means of its glorification. Any other thoughts? I just think of the, um, the rebuker is talking to somebody who's um, obedient. Probably somebody that's teachable, somebody that is maybe 
know, you pay attention. The obedient person pays attention. So just like somebody would be, maybe I'm looking at this wrong, but um, an earring of gold or an ornament of gold, you know, you look at it, you're, you know, you're paying attention to it. It's something to pay attention. So, so somebody who's rebuking or talking, you know, correcting somebody who's, who's, who wants to hear what you have to say, they're paying attention just like you would pay attention to a piece of gold jewelry or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I think that the earring there is specifically referring to um, the person being rebuked, mm -hmm. right? Not the rebuker itself, right? Which, if I'm following you correctly, you're saying that the, the obedient ear. The obedient person would, would though, pay attention yeah. to the rebuker. Like, Absolutely. Just like the, the, the rebuker is a piece of fine jewelry or, or gold in this case. So the person would look at it or pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> This is actually something that hit me when I was on my drive over here, thinking through the passage a little more. And I didn't have time to write it in my notes or anything. But, um, I mean, you know, when Christ was in his parable of the sower, you know, like where he sows the seed and some goes to the thorn, some go to the rock, right? Some goes to good soil, all that stuff, right? And he's, in, in that, he's basically warning us, obviously, to... Make sure that we prepare our hearts to be the heart of good soil as we are coming to receive the word of God. And he says afterwards, he says, take heed how ye hear. Right. So it's the the needing for us to prepare our hearts as we come into, say, reading the Bible for ourselves, but especially in the context of, say, worship and things like that, where we are receiving the preached word to us, where we are having to play a part Right? We are actually having to engage ourselves and be active in our reception of it. Right? It's not just we are being passive. Right? We actually are having to engage and receive it, basically. Right? And that's the only way that, the, that reading the scriptures or hearing the preached word can actually benefit our souls. Is we actually actively engaging and receiving it. Right? That's where the, the fruit comes up and springs up out of the ground, right? Um, so, yeah, just, you know, the words of Christ himself where he flat out says, take heed how ye hear. We need to have those obedient hearts. And even though this verse in particular, excuse me, I'm sorry. This verse in particular is uh, obviously speaking about rebuke, right? And oftentimes, you know, like we, even in the context of the worship service, when we're preach, we're receiving the preached word and things like that. We will, you know, if we say Trent gets up there and he starts talking about a particular type of sin and rebuking that particular type of sin, oftentimes some of the more knee-jerk reaction is your, your mind starts wandering to somebody else, right, and how they are committing this sin in your context. But it's not just for you to think about that other person. It's also for you to think about it within your own soul. And to take heed and be obedient with your own ear to receive that rebuke for yourself. Right? Any other thoughts? Take heed how you hear. Have an obedient heart. Have an obedient ear. Let it adorn 
you like a gold earring. Once again, it's not without its sting, right? No other thoughts? All right. Verse, tw uh, sorry, not verse 20. Verse 13 says, Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. So, clearly this verse is not referring to, say, like a snowstorm or a blizzard or something like that happening in the time of harvest, right? Because that would be disastrous for a farmer, right? For him and his crops, and, you know, if, if there was a snowstorm that happens or whatever. I actually remember when we were living in San Antonio, we were watching Little House on the Prairie with uh, one of our friends over there, um, our deacon and his family. You know, like, the dad in there is, like, this awesome guy that you, like, every man really could look up to in many ways, right? And, you know, he's been working all, like, extremely hard, all the, you know, to, to build up a house and build up an estate for his family and things like that. And, you know, he's working all day long on the farm, you know, trying to uh, get seeds set, trying to get all this good growth and everything. And then, you know, he finally gets a good crop, one, one harvest. And, you know, he's super excited talking about all the things he's going to do with this good harvest that he's about to have. And literally the day that he's about to go and start bringing, uh, you know, going and collecting the crops, you know, and starts uh, reaping it all and stuff. What happens is there's a hailstorm that happens, and basically it completely kills all his crop. Clearly, that's not what this passage is talking about, right? It's not saying uh, that you know this this uh, cold of snow in a time of harvest is actually something refreshing to you. What he's what it's talking about here is uh, all commentators seem to point to the fact that some of the northernmost cities of Israel would bring snow from the mountaintops into Jerusalem and Lebanon. And so that the people could mix it with their drinks to make it more refreshing. So it's kind of like, you know, when you go to your refrigerator and get some ice out of the door. Obviously a lot more uh, accessible for us today. But, but just imagine coming home from a long, hard day's work and you pull out an ice cold beer or put a large cube, uh, ice cube, put a large ice cube into a dram of whiskey for refreshment. That's basically the idea he's getting at here. A messenger refreshes and puts his master's soul at ease when he trustfully carries out the duties just like a glass of ice-cold refreshment after working in the harvest heat all day. Now, why is it a, a, a breath of fresh air for the sender to receive good word from the messenger that he has sent? This was an important means of communication in the ancient world, obviously, and oftentimes messengers wouldn't even make it on time or make it at all. Messengers were often uh, in danger, not only on the road, but even more so when the people that they were... Uh, but even more so with the people that they were sent to, uh, which we see in cases like Vlad the Impaler, also known as Dracula, which is at the very end of that book that I let Sean borrow. Uh, this is a fun little piece of trivia. It's not, it's fairly graphic. But in the case of Dracula, there was a, <laughs> a Turkish Muslim envoy that was sent to him in Wallachia, which is modern-day Romania. And they were demanding a tribute of 10,000 ducats and 300 slave boys. In response, he told them to take off their turbans as it was not custom with the Christian land in which they were. And when they refused, he famously nailed them to their heads. Um, 
Even within the biblical witness itself, Christ gave the parable of a master of a vineyard who sent servants and even his own son to the vine dressers to collect the fruit of the land. And they beat them, stoned them, and even killed some of them. Christ himself is the son that was sent to the wicked vine dressers. He was sent as a messenger of the Father. In Jude's, uh, John 6, he even uses the explicit language of, I came uh, down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me, right? And we also see uh, all throughout the, uh, Paul's epistles where you know, he's, he's offering up praise um, for the messengers that he's sending, Timothy, Epaphroditus, all these men that he's saying, you know, like these men are like-minded with me and they are coming to speak on my behalf to your church, right? Um, and these men are being sent out on my behalf, commending them to these churches, knowing that, them, knowing that they will be able to relay everything from his mind. And in like manner, the apostles themselves and the elders within the church are messengers who are sent into the world to bring the message of the gospel, acting as the voice of the Lord to the peoples. Uh, this is why writings like the Didache say to receive these men, these elders, these preachers, as they would receive the Lord Christ himself. Knowing the risks that come with the office, it is the responsibility of the elders of the church to follow in the footsteps of Christ and his apostles, and even the, uh, be willing to face the dangers that they may find along the way. Um, you know, obviously we see a lot of things coming, cracking down in our, our world now. Um, you know, you, you saw that one pastor up in Canada back in 2020, they got thrown in prison. Uh, there was John MacArthur got thrown in jail for quite some time because, you know, he was refusing, refusing to do the lockdowns. You know, states, some states like California basically saying that uh, trying to pass bills that are making it illegal to speak out against homosexuality and things like that, even in churches. Um, you know, it's it's a uh, there's a lot of dangers that kind of come with standing bold on the truth of the word. Right. And so, um, you know, it's it's the responsibility of them to maintain the, the faithful and, and uh, the, have integrity to the message of the word itself, right? Maintain that, uh, that solid word itself and speak the word of Christ to the, the people, right? Not falter, as Paul says, uh, you know, have, preaching the whole counsel of God, right? Y'all are very talkative bunch. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're doing so good. Yeah. yeah. All right. On to verse 14. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. So, um, this person who boasts and looks as if they give much they look like they have much to offer but they do nothing to actually build others up right they bring no rain to bear the fruit bear fruit and fertility now we contrast this with the the messenger that was refreshing in verse 13 our last verse to the man that is the object of verse 14 here you know one is boastful one and is is not actually building others up, but then we also have the messenger who came and brought the full counsel of God in the last verse. 
you know, they're, they're complete opposites of one another. Rather than humbly preaching the message that was handed to him from his master in heaven, he would rather cover up the light of the sun than draw attention to himself instead. Saw a video of a young uh, preacher last year um, where in the middle of the Sunday service, he began to chastise his congregation for not gifting him with a Rolex, right? Just in the middle of his sermon, just basically started chewing out the church right then and there. Which I'm, which to be fair, I mean obviously, this is not what you're saying. So I'm like preface that. But I mean, like obviously, like there's nothing wrong with a pastor making a good salary. No, no, they right. Can't. And I mean, I'm, but at the same time, like there is obviously where it can be way overboard, like what you're referring to. Like flying in private jet. Yes. yes. <laughs> Guys looking demonic in the news. One hundred percent. Yeah. But, I mean, like these, these guys, you know, the, what they're doing is uh, rather than being ones that, you know, ex- extend the cup of living water to their congregations, they're deciding to go on these rants. They're deciding to prop themselves up with their own self-importance and worth, right? Um, it's not always so on the nose, and this is obviously not just a, uh, a common thing just in the church itself. This is really a very sign of the liberal movement today in general, boasting that they are all about equality of genders, ethnicities, sexual deviance. The boast, uh, they boast that they are in favor of providing welfare to the poor, open borders, etc. right? Uh, now let me ask you, are all of these means by which a nation can produce good fruit? No, surely not. Uh, rather than pouring down rain to bring up life from the soil, they salt it. They're like a strong wind, as our verse says there, that blows and uproots and knocks over the oak tree that has been long-standing since the days of our ancestors. The modern, uh, modern liberalism cannot produce the gifts of life that it promises to its adherents. And that's really all the notes I've got for you all tonight. So... <laughs> Any thoughts? So, you know, when Christ himself is rebuking the Pharisees and he says, you know, you say that you, you uh, give this much in alms. And you know you both you're boasting in it basically, but then he tells them, "Do not tell your left hand what you what you do with your right, mm-hmm. right." So basically, you're making a spectacle out of what you're giving, kind of like what you you were just saying. I'm sorry yeah. about you know how they were saying they gave over two hundred thousand dollars, but in all actuality they only gave four. And not only that, but it's 
even if you did give over 200,000, you're making a show out of it rather than simply doing it and not and, and letting it be as it is, actually doing it as an act of generosity rather than, like I said, propping up your own self-worth and self-importance, right? Yeah, which, I mean, that is kind of a problem that we oftentimes have today. Like, I think just in general, whenever you do something for somebody, they oftentimes just immediately, like, I owe you one, right? Rather than being willing to accept it, which I've heard many men say this, but the last person I heard say it was Mr. Keith. You know, whenever you, he does something for somebody and you're like, no, I got it, I got it. He's always like, don't steal my blessing. Uh, right, it's a very southern, southern man thing to say. What's that? Yeah, I mean, like, and, and there's actually a lot of truth to that. Like, let them serve you. Let them, you know, they're not doing it to try to hold it over your head, or at least they hope they shouldn't be, right? But that's how we ought to operate as a church in general, is we ought to serve one another, not expecting to receive anything in return. I mean, kind of like what Acts 2 says, you know, after, the, after Pentecost has happened and they sold things as, they, as was needed to provide for one another, right? So it's uh, a very selfless, self-giving aspect that is important for the church itself rather than this, you owe me something. Right. Good to go. You guys seem like you're over it. So, <laughs> y'all are done. Y'all, y'all hate hearing me talk. All right. Yeah, keep going, huh? I mean, it is seven o'clock, so it is that time. But <laughs> were you in the military? I'm just joking. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for another 